So in uh, 2005, Jennifer and I started attending here at Fourth Avenue. And we moved to Franklin a couple of years before that, in 2003. Um, We had four children at the time. They were eight, six, four, and two. And we lived in an 1,100 square foot house with one bathroom in Donaldson, Tennessee. So we thought, okay, it's time to make a change. We had sent our oldest son through kindergarten and first grade at Lipscomb, not free Lipscomb here in Williamson County, but Lipscomb, David Lipscomb. And uh, we realized real quickly, if you take that two years and you multiply by four, by 12, we were never going to be able to afford to put them through uh, private school. So we had heard a lot of good things about Williamson County schools. So we started looking out in this area. We found an amazing house um, right here on Henpeck Lane. Had to turn in my man card and live on Henpeck Lane. But uh, it was a two-acre lot, and it had a big um, ditch out by the street. It had a beautiful creek running through it and over 75 trees until about a year later when a tornado came through and took down about six or eight of them. But uh, 75 plus trees. So you can imagine how I spent most of my Saturdays, right? Out in the yard doing yard work, a lot of yard work. Well, on this particular Saturday, I was out there. I'd spent about two hours weed eating the yard. And uh, after I finished, turn off the weed ears, started walking up the driveway, big, long, winding driveway through the two acres. And I noticed that my right arm felt really tight. It's like, that's weird. And I started kind of bending and moving my elbow and moving my fingers, and I thought, wow, something's going on here. And I looked down, and my right arm was twice as big as my left arm. I thought, that's, that's unusual. And it clicked in my head right away. I knew right away what I was dealing with. See, I practiced orthopedic medicine. I'd been doing that already for three years before that date. I had already seen patients who had this same problem and worked through the process with them. I knew immediately I had a blood clot in my shoulder. And I'd come off of, I was playing softball. At that time we attended Woodmont Hills. I played softball, played center field. I used to really could run, those days are over, but I really used to be pretty fast. And uh, uh, I did a lot of throws from center field all the way in. And so a lot of that overhead throw motion, repetitively, and then you take two hours of weed eating with a lot of vibration, you develop a clot. If you have an anatomic issue. See, I have very prominent first ribs, and my first rib was compressing the blood vessels that, uh, that, that passed between the first rib and my clavicle. And so the throwing motion and the weed eating led to this blood clot. So don't do as I do. Don't try this at home. I, I always tell my patients what to do, but I didn't follow my own advice, right? Because medical people aren't necessarily the best patients. Uh, so I went inside, I elevated my arm, started taking aspirin. You know, not a, bad, not a bad idea, but not the best idea, right? Good, but not best. So I made it through Saturday, the rest of Saturday. I made it through Sunday. What do you do on Monday when you've got a blood clot in your shoulder? You go to work, right? I had a whole slate of patients set up. I didn't want to leave them in a lurch, so I went to work. 
When I got to work, one of the surgeons that I worked with said, wait a second. <laughs> this is, this is, there's something bad going on here. You need to get, I said, no, I'll go at lunch. I'll handle the morning schedule. He said, no, you'll go right now. So I went to the uh, imaging center at Williamson Medical Center. They did a procedure called a venogram where they inject a dye in your arm and they watch it travel up the arm on a special x-ray called a C-arm. And it showed that I had a six inch blood clot right here. And not only that, that blood clot was kind of working its way over into what's called the superior vena cava, which means it was on the verge of breaking free and going directly into my heart. So this is a life-threatening situation, right? I remember the uh, interventional radiologist as he was doing the test, he turned pale as a ghost. He just clammed up, he quickly exited the room and gathered himself and then came back in to tell me what was going on. I remember that moment so well. We didn't have, I didn't have a cell phone then, it was 2003, and so they brought me a phone to call Jennifer and kind of report to her what was going on. I was immediately admitted to the ICU at Williamson where they'd started to work on all kinds of tests and studies. Is this some kind of hematologic issue that makes me clot more so than normal? Or was this a mechanical issue? And that's what it turned out to be, a mechanical issue. So they tried all these things. They eventually transferred me to Vanderbilt Medical Center where I was under the care of the chief of vascular surgery. This is rare, but not rare. You know, it's, it's, a lot of baseball uh, pitchers get this. Um, and you have to have surgery often to get rid of it, which was what happened for me. I ended up having to have surgery to get rid of this. And they actually removed a big segment of my first rib so that the blood vessels could pass through there without compression. Problem solved. Praise the Lord. I didn't have to take any blood thinners or anything like that. It's been normal ever since. But the part that I want to highlight through this process was the time that I spent in the hospital. I was at Williamson Medical Center for about a day, and then they transferred me to Vanderbilt, and I was in the ICU at both facilities. Now, the ICU is a pretty tough place, right? There's a lot of people who are in really, really dire straits. Well, here I am, the picture of health. I'm 34 years old. Uh, you look at me, I look normal. And so the nurses, obviously, they put their attention toward those who deserved or needed their attention more than this picture of health lying in an ICU bed. So I spent about 22 hours a day completely alone. Completely alone. Might get an occasional someone walk in, but whatever. Those two hours, visitation's kind of minimal in the ICU, right? So Jennifer taking care of our four children, trying to keep them from freaking out, trying to keep them from getting really scared about what's going on with daddy. Um, remember, they're eight, six, four, and two, so they're young, this very impressionable age. And, but, but she would, um, she would come see me when she could, but I totally understood her predicament, right? She had a lot going on. So a lot of time alone. Now, sometimes what happens when you're alone, you've never had any major medical issues and you, know, you don't have anyone necessarily checking up on you much. You, your, your mind starts to kind of play games with you, right? And you can quickly become a little bit depressed. And it's amazing how quickly that can happen. And you can start to feel really alone. And that feeling of being alone can transition to 
just this deep loneliness. And that happened to me. I developed this amazing sense of loneliness while I was in the hospital. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you've had things in your life that kind of tipped the scales and made you feel lonely. Maybe some of you can't, and for that, be very, very thankful. So have you ever felt alone or lonely? A few questions here. Ever feel alone? Ever feel invisible? As if no one notices? As if people see right through you? As if God doesn't even notice? As if God looks past you while tending to the needs of others? And here you are just overlooked, passed by? You know, we come out of this crazy year of COVID, right? We've all been isolated. The world's been isolated. We've been isolated. It's changed our lives dramatically. Isolation has this ability to force us, kind of nudge us, and push us down this pathway toward initially, hey, we're isolated, we're alone, but sometimes it can convert to just that deep loneliness. Loneliness can be defined as an unpleasant emotion, I'm sorry, an unpleasant emotional response to perceived isolation. Get that perceived isolation? What does that mean? That means that you can actually be lonely in the middle of a crowd because it takes that aloneness and converts it to loneliness, which is much, much deeper, much, much more intense. And I've heard it said before, that if somebody feels lonely, they are lonely. If you feel it, if you perceive that you're lo- you're lonely. And that's just the truth that you know. One of the enemy's best tactics is to attack us while we're alone with the goal of inflicting emotional pain and hoping we will turn to any source but God for an answer. The enemy wants to cause us to transition from feeling alone to being lonely. And when when he gets us there, he can kind of start to steal our hope. And when he gets our hope, he has us right where he wants us. So what causes loneliness? First of all, I would be remiss to say that we can't ignore the fact that the natural ebb and flow of life will allow a loneliness from time to time. The passing away of loved ones. Sally, so glad you're here today. So glad you're here today. Difficult life circumstances. Chronic physical pain. Emotional pain. It slips into depression. Job loss broken relationships, a pandemic, all can make us feel pretty lonely. Sometimes we become lonely because we lose focus on what really matters. 
We turn our attention to the things of the world rather than seeing life through the lens of eternity. Think about that. If we could develop that ability to see life through the lens of eternity, these temporal things wouldn't affect us quite as much, would they? When I was uh, 12 years old, I got my first BB gun. And a 12-year-old boy with a BB gun, that can be trouble. I, I would go through my yard. We lived in Brentwood at the time, and, and we had a one-acre yard, lots of trees, lots of stuff. And I would look for anything and everything that I could shoot with that BB gun. One day, I uh, saw this big garden spider in the middle of this intricate spider web. And I thought, I need to shoot that. So... <laughs> So we'll pretend this microphone's a spider. So I, I line up my gun, and I, I'm probably in about three inches away from it. I'll pump it up 10 times. You got to go 10 times, right, to kill a spider. So I line it up, and I'm focused on that spider, and I shoot. The spider disappears, right? He's obliterated. But then I heard that all-too-familiar all sound of breaking glass. I had become so focused on the spider, I didn't realize I was aiming right at the window of our dining room. So that was about a $125 shot as I had to pay for that glass. But sometimes we get so focused on what's right in front of us that we lose sight of the big picture, don't we? All we can see is right in front of us. We begin to feel as though sometimes that no one is listening, not even God. You pray those prayers and you think they're falling on deaf ears, right? And we think if God doesn't answer our prayers, then is he really listening? Our minds can start to run with things like that. And we, be we begin to feel as though we are the only one on the face of this earth dealing with what we're dealing with. It's amazing how we can get there so quickly and it can take root so deeply as we lose focus. There are several characters in the Bible that we read and know and love that dealt with loneliness. Don't you imagine that Joseph, as he was thrown in the pit by his brothers, felt pretty lonely? I mean, his brothers <laughs> threw him in a pit. And then this traveling group of merchants comes by and they're, oh, let's sell him into slavery. So they pull him out and sell him. And I, I can imagine Joseph felt pretty lonely through that process. And then, even in Egypt, he um, does nothing wrong but ends up in prison because he stands for what's right. right? There's a lot of times when you read about and look at the life of Joseph where you go, wow, he must have been really lonely. Or think about Elijah. He's just come off of the, uh, the battle of the ages with the uh, prophets of Baal and God shows up in a big, mighty way. And Elijah comes out of that with Jezebel hunting him down and pledging, by tomorrow, I will kill you. And Elijah goes and he hides in a cave. I mean, this guy's just seen the glory of God in unbelievable ways and it didn't take him but an instant to convert to being alone in a cave, trying to figure out what's next. And he said this, I am the only one left, and now they are crying to, trying to kill me too. See how quickly he got that feeling of, I'm the only one in the world that still holds to this truth. 
Uh, also, look at the life of Paul. Paul was imprisoned how many times throughout the New Testament? Thankfully, he, he had a lot of time in prison to write these amazing letters that inform the church and what we do and how we live. And, but during those times, I can imagine, in the flesh, Paul felt very alone and lonely. And of course, we know about Jesus. Jesus had moments in his life where he was alone and felt lonely. Think about when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and his closest friends fell asleep. He's fighting through one of the darkest hours of his life on this earth and his friends are asleep. That had to feel pretty lonely. Or think about when he stretched out on that cross. He's alone because he embodies our sin. And he's alone and his father has to turn his face. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's pretty lonely. I would have guessed that everyone has experienced a degree of loneliness in their lifetime. It is a normal emotion. There's no need to feel guilty about feeling lonely. Some people can begin to think it's because I'm self-centered, I'm only thinking about me. No, sometimes it just is. And it shouldn't make you feel guilty. In fact, it's actually one more way that we can identify with Jesus, isn't it? He felt loneliness. We feel loneliness. We can identify with that, and he can identify with us. But we, can't that, we cannot let that be the end of the story, can we? We can't let loneliness be the end of the story. For those we love, for those we go to church with, for those in our family, even for strangers that we cross paths with, we can't let that be the end of the story. So here's another question. Do you know who you really are? Do you know who you really are? This may be the one time when it's okay to say, don't you know who I am? And I would encourage you, as you think about this, as we unpack this question, develop the habit, develop the ability to stand firm on who you are. And we're going to talk about this in more detail. Stand firm on who you are. And when the enemy comes at you with a temptation, when the enemy tries to trip you up, puts this little, he crafts this little temptation. You say, Satan, don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? You've got nothing on me. It it occurs to me that God didn't have to be so creative when he created this world. He He didn't have to be so creative. We'll talk about that. He chose to bless us with vivid colors, beautiful sounds, music and song, lively imaginations, the ability to create in our minds, bursting flavors, comforting warmth in the bitter cold. We've had a lot of bitter cold lately, haven't we? Comforting warmth when you step in that house, the fire's going. These are all gifts from God. Soothing coolness in the scorching heat. 
quenching thirst when we're thirsty. Sparkling eyes, right? You look at someone and you see the sparkle in their eye. Or the warm, inviting smiles that we see on each other's faces once we can get rid of these masks. I figured out that you have to preach to be able to take off your mask in church. Right? Who's next? Um, But God loves us and he wants to bless us with a fulfilling experience during our lives. And our lives are nothing more than a dress rehearsal for eternity. We're just in the dress rehearsal. But God wants us to even enjoy the dress rehearsal. I really do believe that God wants us to live a good, pleasing, and fulfilling life. One of the uh, great philosophers of my day, John Denver, uh, has a song called Annie's Song. Don't know if you've heard it. I think this song could very well have been written about God. I'm going to read some of the words to you. I'm going to try not to burst into song. I love this song. (laughs) When I was practicing through this, I actually started singing when I got to this part. I'm not going to do that today. Um, But um, listen to this, because it paints a word picture. And I would suggest this word picture is because of God's amazing desire for us to enjoy his creation. It says, you fill up my senses. Think about that. God fills up our senses like a night in a forest, like the mountains in springtime, like a walk in the rain, like a storm in the desert, like a sleepy blue ocean. You fill up my senses, come fill me again. Invite him in. There's more. Come let me love you. Let me give my life to you. Let me drown in your laughter. Feel God's pleasure? He laughs. He enjoys. Let me die in your arms. Let me lay down beside you. Let me always be with you. Come let me love you. Come love me again. Like, <laughs> That could be a Christian song, could it? (laughs) Uh, God was very imaginative in his creation. So we have a world full of wonder to enjoy and experience. Our creative God created all that for our enjoyment and our pleasure. He's on a mission. He is on a mission. He is seeking our company. And he longs to be with us. He created nature to draw us to him. He went on the hunt for Elijah hiding out in that cave. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? After Adam and Eve did sin, the Bible tells us God went for a walk in the coolness of the garden and said, where are you? Even after they had sinned, He sought them out, wanted to be with them. Have you ever hidden from God because of guilt and shame in your life? I have. And he came to where I was. He sought me out. He found me and he found you too, didn't he? 
So if you don't hear a word I say today, I want you to listen closely to this next little segment because I'm going to read several scriptures uh, in a row. And, and these scriptures are meant to answer, do you know who you really are? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Out of Psalm 139, he says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them all full well. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And then out of 1 Peter, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Out of Ephesians, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Out of 2 Corinthians, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Out of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Out of 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Out of Romans 8, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, not anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord out of Exodus. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And then out of 1 John, see what great love the Father has lavished on us? That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That's a lot of really strong promises. I summarized it. We are a chosen people created in his image. We have a God-given purpose for our lives before we are even born. We are sinful but saved. We are cherished children bought at a price. And absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from our God. That says a lot about who we are, doesn't it? 
Take it in. Believe it. Consume it. Trust it. Have faith in it. That's who you are. And nothing can change that. So back to my story. I'm lying in the ICU bed at Vanderbilt. The days are long. The loneliness is deep. The isolation is palpable. But that's not the full story. It's not the end of the story. Jennifer would ask her family or my family to step up and help take care of the children. And she would come, come visit me. Sweet times. I remember she would lower the head of my bed and wash my hair in the hospital bed just to help me feel human again. Unbelievable moments. I'll never forget how I felt. My friend Christopher Atkinson came to visit me. Shared words of encouragement brought me great joy. Returned laughter to my day, as only Christopher can do. Um, I was a part of a covenant group. Those guys filtered through over and over. We were in a small group at Woodmont Hills where we attended at the time. They just filed through one family at a time as the days allowed. Again, my family stepped up, helped out with our children. My brother-in-law, Dave, jumped in and cut that two-acre yard uh, a few times for me. My community stepped up in a big way. I couldn't have done it without them. Those people who stepped up to support me were part of or a product of the community that I'd been building for some time, right? I was active in my small group. I was in a covenant group. I had good friendships. I had a strong family. All of that was done prior to when the trial occurred, right? So that when the trial came, they were there and changed my life. Now, some of you may be thinking this sermon doesn't apply to you. Maybe you've never felt lonely. Maybe you just don't understand that sensation or that feeling. I'm here to say that this sermon applies to everyone, and here's why. If you're not feeling lonely, somebody else is. And the best way to be in good community is to be good community. I recently came across this quote that I read in a newsletter. It says, to love someone is to learn the song in their heart and sing it to them when they've forgotten. To love someone is to learn the song in their heart and sing it to them when they've forgotten. I pray that we can get to know each other and spend enough time with each other to get to know the song in our hearts so that when we're in those moments where maybe we can't muster the energy to sing it, that we've got a community of people that can sing it with us and for us until we can be restored and sing it again. That is what community is. 
Um, from 2012 to 2015, I had the opportunity to take each of my children individually. So four summers in a row, I took each of them for a week to this uh, Christian camp in Northern California. It's called J.H. Ranch. Some of you may or may not have heard of it. It's a really pretty amazing place. It's just nestled in the mountains with the valley there. Uh, Mark, you can bring your team up. Nestled in the valley there in Northern California. You have to fly to Sacramento and drive four hours north. That's how out of, uh, um, you know, the normal path that it is. But I, I got to spend a week with each of my children at JH Ranch, four different summers. And it's a really special time, right? They try their best to make you as uncomfortable as they can make you. There's a lot of heights that you do and a lot of different things that are meant to make you very uncomfortable so that you learn to depend on each other and you learn to depend on God, right? That's the whole focus, that's the whole purpose. Every night there's a worship in, um, there's this big top tent that's nestled down in the valley at the foot of the mountains and you gather every night to worship. The worship leader was amazing. He was there all four summers that I was. His name's Ronnie Freeman. Ronnie wrote this song. It's called You See Me. And when I heard it out there, I thought, ooh, I need to remember that one because that, that one's gonna be special for not only me but others. I asked the team to um, learn this song and sing it for you. Ben is gonna do an amazing job. You're about to be led in some worship. It's gonna really impact you. But um, we're gonna put the words on the screen. But just listen, just absorb, just soak it in and appreciate that you are a part of a community that serves a God who sees you. And we've answered, who are you today, right? Believe it. Ask Satan, don't you know who I am? You've got nothing on me because your God sees you. Even if I'm alone 
was on this earth, he spent a lot of time alone. He would go off and pray alone. He went to the garden alone. He went to the cross alone. He went to the grave alone. But he did all that so that we wouldn't have to be alone. He gifted us with the Holy Spirit. He founded the church, which is alive and well and strong today. Know this, you have been planted in this community for a reason. You need us and we need you. I pray that we will never forget the gift of community.